Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. I want to take a second and thank everyone around the world who is listening to this podcast. In less than two weeks it's been downloaded 500 times in 20 different countries. I've put a lot of hard work into starting this show and to see that people are enjoying and listening to every episode, sometimes within hours of it coming online, warms my heart. Thank you everyone. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. For more information, check out the website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you would like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via patreon.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations received will get a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to so that we can expand the listenership. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Heavy Rock in the 1980s was the def- Fine by the thrash metal music of Metallica, Slayer, and Megadeth. But by the end of the decade, a new sound was on the horizon. Grunge music was on the rise in the early 90s, and metal needed a new sound. Groove metal was the new sound, which matched some of the heaviness of thrash metal, but provided a more mellow alt-rock feel. Metallica adjusted and became one of the biggest bands of the 1990s, and another band, led by the drummer-guitarist-brother duo of Vincent Paul Abbott and Daryl Lance Abbott, also found success. The brothers started out in glam metal and went by the stage names Vinnie Paul and Diamond Daryl. Their band, Pantera, released its first album, Metal Magic, in 1983. By 1990, the band had morphed into groove metal, and the albums Cowboys from Hell, Vulgar Display of Power, and Far Beyond Driven propelled the band into the mainstream of metal rock. As is the case in most bands, popularity gave rise to conflict and tensions reached their apex in 2003 when Pantera broke up. Vinnie Paul and his brother, now going by the name Dimebag Daryl, formed the band Damage Plan and took to touring the country in 2004. It was at one of their concerts in 2004 that the unthinkable happened. A deranged fan rushed the stage during the first song of the event and shot and killed four people. One of the top 100 guitarists of all times would be among those who died that night. This is the story of Dimebag Daryl and the other victims of that fateful night. While this story is not meant to take away anything from the other victims that night, most of the information about the incident pertains to Daryl. So while I will cover all the victims eventually, Daryl will be the most extensive and informative as he has the most information available. Daryl Lance Abbott was born on August 20th, 1966 in Annis, Texas, to Carolyn and Jerry Abbott. Jerry was a country music producer and they had one other son, Daryl's older brother Vincent, born two years earlier. When Daryl was 13, his parents divorced and he lived with his mother in Arlington, Texas. But his father bought a house nearby and Daryl would often bike to his father's house for guitar lessons. Daryl received an electric guitar and a mobile amplifier for his 12th birthday. His idols were Kiss, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Van Halen, and Daryl would often stand in front of the mirror in his room holding his guitar while wearing Kiss-style makeup. 
Like many aspiring young guitar players, he learned to play by strumming along with some of his favorite songs, but he also got informal lessons from some of the country music and blues legends that recorded at his father's studio. The brothers got a drum set a few years before Daryl got his guitar. They both loved playing the drums, but Vincent would later claim that he was better at the drums than Daryl and wouldn't let Daryl play anymore. When Daryl started to master the guitar, they had a six-hour jam session replaying the famous album Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Vincent would later say that once they started playing music together, the brothers were inseparable. By age 14, Daryl was good enough at the guitar to enter local guitar competitions that mainly featured adults, but after he began winning every single one that he entered, often blowing the judges away with his talent, they eventually asked him to stop competing so someone else could win. The band Pantera was formed in 1981. Some high school classmates of Vincent named Terry Glaze, Tommy Bradford, and Donnie Hart asked Vincent to be their drummer. He agreed, but only on the condition that Daryl could also be in the band. This was met with some trepidation as Daryl was only 15 at the time and he was just a quote, skinny, scrawny dude, end quote. The name Pantera is both the Italian and Spanish word for panther and was inspired by the Italian car De Tomosa Pantera. Vincent thought the word sounded cool, and after researching it, he recommended it to the rest of the band. They chose it over the names Gemini and Eternity. In 1982, the band lost its vocalist Donnie Hart, and Terry Glaze took over the vocals. Daryl originally shared lead guitar with Terry Glaze, but Daryl kept getting better and better and became the lead guitarist for the band. He adopted the stage name Diamond Daryl after the Kiss song Black Diamond. Playing to their glam rock idols, Pantera began by emulating the likes of Kiss, Van Halen, and Judas Priest. They wore spandex pants and made sure they had makeup on with big hair while on stage. This was the 80s after all, and tight clothes, big hair, and a lot of hairspray was required. Jerry Abbott recognized that his son's band had potential, and he created a metal music production company under an alias and signed the band to Metal Magic Records. The band would record and release its first album in 1983 titled Metal Magic. The album would receive mostly negative reviews, and critics hated all but two of the songs. However, they stated that Daryl's guitar playing showed real promise for the band's future. A year later, in 1984, the band released its second album, Projects in the Jungle. This was better, received better by critics, but they mostly stated it was an improvement over the terrible first album, but did show the band was maturing. Their third album, I Am The Night, released in 1986, continued to show improvement. The band was moving on from the sounds of Kiss and embracing the more thrash metal sounds of Metallica and Slayer. This upset their lead singer Terry Glaze as he felt the tracks were getting too metal focused and away from the vocals. He left the band after this third album. In late 1986, the band got a new lead singer by the name of Phil Anselmo. Phil was comfortable letting Daryl's guitar work be the star of the show and supporting it with his voice. The band would release Power Metal in 1988. This album would be a transitional sound for Pantera as it moved away from glam metal and started the movement towards groove metal. Pantera was shopping around for a new production studio at this time and ended up being rejected by several labels. The production of a new album for the band was estimated to cost around $75,000, which is roughly $170,000 today, and this was too much for most labels to risk. 
They would eventually sign with Atco Records and release the album Cowboys from Hell on July 24, 1990. This album is widely recognized as the first example of groove metal and went on to attain double platinum status around the world. For those that don't know, groove metal is a combination of heavier trash metal and southern rock that creates a slower tempo but keeps the heavy feel to the music. Having achieved national success, Pantera began touring in 1990 and did so for the remainder of the 90s. They took breaks to release new material, recording and releasing Vulgar Display of Power in 1992. This album was a further refinement of groove metal that had a harder edge to it. It was ranked number 10 of Rolling Stone's top 100 greatest metal albums of all time. As the music transformed, so did the band members, including Daryl. He developed his own style, wearing cargo shorts and a sleeveless shirt. He also adopted a new stage name, Dimebag Daryl. He was given this nickname by the band's singer because Daryl would refuse to accept more than $10 worth of marijuana at a time, even if it was given to him for free, for fear of being caught with more than a dime bag. Their next album, Far Beyond Driven, released on March 15, 1994 and debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200. It's been recognized as the heaviest metal album ever to debut at number one. While bands like Metallica were losing their heavy edge with each album release, Pantera challenged itself to get even heavier with each album and push the boundaries of mainstream rock. Soon Pantera began to face what a lot of mainstream musical groups deal with, drugs and alcohol. In this case, the lead singer, Phil Anselmo, was using drugs and alcohol to numb chronic back pain he had from doing so many performances with a bad back. It was said he would drink an entire bottle of wild turkey before each show and was known to take painkillers and heroin. He overdosed in July of 1996, but was brought back after being clinically dead for four to five minutes. The band continued to push through these issues, touring and releasing albums. Their next two albums, The Great Southern Trendkill and Reinventing the Steel, both debuted at number four on the top 200, but the band was now struggling to get their lead singer to collaborate and oftentimes even show up for the recordings. Phil Anselmo had started two other bands on his own and was touring and releasing albums with the bands Down and Superjoint. Then the Abbott brothers' mother, Carolyn, was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1999 and died six weeks after diagnosis. The boys, who had been extremely close with their mother, were devastated, and this event, combined with the inability to keep their lead singer and bass guitarist engaged with the band, led to the band's split in 2003. Daryl took the breakup of the band pretty hard, but the brothers still had each other and decided to start a new band. They decided the legal battles around using the Pantera name without Anselmo and Brown would be too much, so they called their new band Newfound Power. The band would later change their name to Damage Plan and use Newfound Power as the name of their first album. They signed with Electro Records in 2003. The change in the name did end up hurting their brand and their debut album only debuted at number 38 and sold a modest but underwhelming 160,000 copies its first year. To try and resurrect their fan base, the band opted to tour the country in 2004, playing mainly nightclubs as opposed to the stadiums they used to sell out as Pantera. This tour would come to a tragic end in Columbus, Ohio on December 8th of 2004. That night, the temperature was around 40 degrees Fahrenheit, or 4 degrees Celsius, as heavy music lovers packed into the small El Rosa Villa nightclub. 
The nightclub could hold 600 people and had sold 250 tickets for that evening's performance. The opening acts were local Columbus, Ohio bands Volume Dealer and 12 Gauge. While those bands were playing, a young, well-sized man was seen loitering around the parking lot. The club's manager, Rick Cautella, noticed the man and asked him why he was outside. The man, later later identified as Nathan Gale, replied he didn't want to see the local bands, he was waiting for damage plan. I'm guessing his behavior was noticed by the manager and other people due to the near-freezing temperatures outside and the fact the nightclub wasn't even half full. Ticket sales at night show that by the time Damage Plan took the stage, the number of concert goers was around 400. It was 10.15 p.m. when Gale scaled a six-foot wooden fence on the north side of the nightclub property and entered through a patio door. Five minutes later, the band was halfway through their first song when Gale rushed onto the stage wearing a Columbus Blue Jackets hockey sweater with a hooded sweatshirt underneath. He pulled out a 9mm Beretta 92FS semi-automatic pistol and shot Daryl four times at close range while shouting something that to this day is still a mystery. Daryl was hit in the cheek, the left ear, the back of the head, and the right hand. Gale then turned the gun on other people near the stage. The band's tour manager, Chris Paluska, was near was the next target. Gale shot him once in the chest. Jeffrey Thompson, the band's security chief, ran on stage and tackled Gale from behind. A struggle between the two resulted in Thompson being shot in the chest, back, and thigh. Thompson would die from these wounds. A fan in the crowd rushed onto st- the stage and tried administering first aid to Daryl and then Thompson. Gale fatally shot Nathan Bray while he was attempting to resuscitate the two downed men. An employee of the nightclub named Aaron Hawk, a former Marine, was shot and killed when he ran on stage to try to stop Gale. He was shot four times in the chest, once in the hand, and once in the leg. A road crew member named Thomas Burnett tried to disarm Gale, but was shot in the arm and then retreated as Gale tried to shoot him in the head. John Brooks, a drum technician for the band, also tried to disarm Gale and was shot twice in the leg and taken hostage by Gale as police arrived on scene. Being just three minutes from the scene, Officer James Nigemeyer of Columbus Division of Police arrived on scene and entered the club through a back door and was able to get a clean shot on Gale and the officer ended the carnage with a 12-gauge shotgun blast to Gale's face. At the time he was shot, Gale still had half a magazine of ammo and two more full magazine on his body with a total of 30 more rounds. With the shooter taken out of action, life-saving attempts were immediately made on Daryl, Thompson, Hawk, and Bray. Bray was the only one transported and he was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital at 11.10 p.m. The nightmare was over and five people, including the shooter, were dead. We've talked about the life of Daryl, now let's bring some focus on the lives of the other three innocent people killed that evening. Jeffrey, nicknamed Mayhem Thompson, was a 40-year-old man from Fort Benning, Georgia, who served as the head of security for Damage Plan. He was described as a gentle giant standing 6'8 and weighing 300 pounds. A tribute to Thompson was written by a friend on the site for the American Rogues. In the tribute, the writer describes meeting Thompson for the first time and the sun being eclipsed by this mountain of a man with a rumbling voice. The man made a joke about Thompson's nickname, and Thompson proceeded to pick up the six-foot-one man and tickle him. It was said that he needed a bo- uh, that Thompson needed a body as big as his to hold a heart that big. 
Thompson prophetically told the members of Damage Plan on several occasions that he'd take a bullet for them, but sadly in this case he was telling the truth. Now as I was researching this I saw several photos of Thompson on different websites and to say that this guy eclipsed the sun or was a mountain of a man is somewhat of an understatement I think. There's several pictures of him, uh, he, this American Rogues company appeared to travel like renaissance fairs and that kind of stuff and there's pictures of him all over the internet picking up these full-grown adult males as if they're children and I can only imagine we're gonna cover that Gale is also a bigger guy at I think six foot three and at some point around 250 pounds so I can only imagine that Thompson was just about the only person that was going to be able to disarm this guy hand-to-hand -hand while he had a gun and unfortunately even then his size wasn't enough. Nathan Bray was a 21-year-old college student from Circleville, Ohio. He had been attending the University of Ohio and studying to become a high school teacher when he met the love of his life, got married, and had a son named Anthony. He left school to support his young family and was a huge Pantera fan and a fan of Dimebag Daryl. He even had a collection of Dimebag's guitar picks that Dimebag would throw into the audience during shows. On the night of the shooting, Nathan rushed onto the stage to try to save Dimebag Daryl, but upon finding his idol's body without any life, he moved on to Thompson, who was still alive. It was at this point that the suspect reappeared and fatally shot Nathan Bray. Lance Corporal Aaron Hulk was born in 1975 in Columbus, Ohio. A former Marine, he was working at the nightclub that night, and when he realized what was happening, he rushed the stage. He had tried to time the attack on Gale while Gale was reloading, but Gale completed the reload faster than Hulk had anticipated, and Hulk was shot fatally before he could disarm Gale. So now that we've covered all of the uh, murder victims of this crime, let's talk about why this happened and who was Nathan Gale. Nathan Gale was born on September 11, 1979 in Chicago, Illinois. When he was young, his parents divorced and he moved with his mother to Marysville, Ohio. He grew to be six foot three and competed in some sports in high school, but had an otherwise unremarkable high school life. After graduating high school in 1998, he lived with his mother and worked a series of dead-end part-time jobs while developing a substance abuse problem. He developed severe paranoia, which his mother believed was the result of his drug use, but he eventually grew so uncontrollable that after a violent confrontation with his mother, police were called. He was thrown out of the house and lived on the streets, gaining money through panhandling and stealing items of need. He eventually agreed to enter a drug rehab program, which was part of an agreement he had with his mother in order for him to return to living at her house. Now, law enforcement would have run-ins with Gale, but they were mainly for minor issues related to his homelessness like trespassing and stealing. Shortly after the 9-11 attacks, Gale decided to join the U.S. Marine Corps. As a token of her appreciation in turning his life around and her pride in him, she purchased a Beretta pistol for him as a Christmas present in 2002 after he completed his basic training. Gale was stationed in Camp Lejeune in North Carolina with the 2nd Marine Division until November of 2003 when he was discharged halfway through his four-year enlistment. While the military wouldn't say why he was discharged, his mother said it was due to his growing paranoid schizophrenia. During high school in the 90s, Gale had developed a taste for heavy metal music and became a huge fan of, of Pantera. 
As his obsession grew and his drug use and paranoia got worse, he began to believe that Pantera was stealing song lyrics from him and putting the lyrics into their songs. He would often tell friends and strangers that Pantera was stealing song lyrics from him and started telling friends that God was commanding him to kill people. After being discharged from the Marines, Gale, who was at this time 6'3 and 250 pounds, took up boxing and football. He earned a spot on the semi-pro football team, the Lima Thunder, as an offensive lineman. Teammates would say he would pump himself up before games by listening to Pantera. Now this is where we can take a break and talk about schizophrenia. I know we mentioned that his mother believed that some of the schizophrenia was caused by his drug use. Now I could not in the research find what drugs he was abusing at this time. There are links between mind-altering drugs and schizophrenia, but it's also known that around that late teens, early 20s is kind of the danger period for people to develop worsening cases of paranoid schizophrenia. So whether it was drugs or he already had the mental illness and it was just getting worse or the drugs were making it worse, it's kind of one of those things that's hard to prove. However, somebody with his form of paranoid schizophrenia just based off the descriptions from the research it's very difficult because their mental illness makes them believe a hundred percent of what is happening in their brain is real and it's almost impossible for anybody else to convince them that it's not a lot of the times these are cases that involve people that feel like they're being stalked by the fbi and they will see a silver minivan one day and their brain will tell them that that is an FBI minivan and then every silver minivan they see from that point on and in suburbia that's a lot of silver minivans they will will then reinforce in their brain that they're being watched by the FBI as a police officer i often had to respond to people of this age that were suffering from severe bouts of paranoid schizophrenia and this is something that they would point out and even if you tried to point out some of the fallacies in their arguments like they would see a silver minivan driving by and it would say see look there's another one and you could point out that the woman driving the minivan looks like a suburban mother or a suburban father and they would tell you that doesn't matter that's how the FBI dresses so that he doesn't realize it's the FBI. So in their mind, they are 100% convinced that what is happening is real. So in this case, Nathan Gale has convinced himself in his brain that Pantera is stealing his lyrics and putting them into their songs. And there is nobody in this world that is going to be able to tell him otherwise because he, he believes it the same as any of us would believe what we're seeing is real. And if you tried to come into my house and convince me that I wasn't right now sitting in front of my computer doing this podcast, that I was you know, doing something else, I was actually playing soccer in my backyard, I could tell you 100% that no, I believe I'm sitting at my computer doing my podcast right now. These people, it's what they're 
experiencing is so real to them that it, they've convinced themselves that what is happening is real and nobody else can convince them otherwise. So as he's developed this obsession with Pantera and the lyrics and he's hearing these voices, this is all going to come into, into the culmination at the end of 2004. Now, as 2004 rolls around, his mental illness appears to be getting worse. The VA had lined up jobs for him and was giving him medications for his men mental illness, but friends state he began talking to himself, holding an imaginary dog, and bothering strangers about his obsession with heavy metal music. On April 4, 2004, Nathan Gale stormed the stage at a Bogarts nightclub in Columbus, Ohio, while Damage, Pla while Damage Plan was playing. He caused roughly $2,000 in damage to the equipment, and police were called and were willing to press charges against Gale for the damages, but the members of Damage Plan did not want to have to return to Ohio for future court appearances and declined to press charges. Now, we already discussed actually what did happen on December 8th of that same year when he stormed on the stage, and I don't feel I need to go through all of his actions again, but it's interesting to look back on the April 4th incident and see if things might have been different or ultimately wouldn't have been any different if Gale had gotten into the you know, criminal justice system with, with those charges. Because after he's killed by Officer Negemeyer, an autopsy was performed and Gale was said to have found no drugs, even prescription drugs or alcohol in his system. So even though the VA is giving him drugs for this paranoid schizophrenia, a lot of people, and this is the case in a lot of mental illnesses, but a lot of people don't like the side effects of the drugs or they feel the drugs themselves, especially paranoid schizophrenics, believe that the drugs then become part of the paranoia. So by taking the drugs, they feel as if their mind is being controlled even more. So the fact that he's now at this point an unmedicated paranoid schizophrenic with hallucinations and delusions of grandeur it's just all around it's a bad situation now due to his actions on that night officer negemeyer would be awarded the distinguished law enforcement valor award in ohio and was named law enforcement officer of the year by the nra in 2005. gail's mother was reported to have called officer negemeyer a hero and gave him credit for the many lives he saved. She would also state that she was haunted by the fact that she gave her son a gun that killed four people. The investigation revealed that Gail was likely suffering from severe and unmedicated paranoid schizophrenia and believed that Daryl was to blame as the reason that the band Pantera broke up and no other motive behind the attack could be found during the investigation. So you do have to feel for Nathan's mother here to some degree. I mean, some people are gonna question the fact that her son had shown signs of this violence and, and mental illness in his past. You know, it was just a couple years before she gave him this gun that she had kicked him out of the house for her violent encounter with him and the police, but you have to remember she also believed it was due to the drugs that he was taking at the time, the, the illicit drugs and he had gone through rehab and had cleaned himself up from that and had gone off to marine basic training and graduated so i think she honestly believed that the worst was behind him and that this was a new chance for him at life and 
I don't want to speculate too much here because I don't know and I did not find it in the research, but being that the Breda model that he received is the same model that at the time was the main handgun of the U.S. military, and depending on what job you had in the military, uh, some positions that was their service weapon was that handgun. It's unknown if that was a situation where he liked it so much in the military that he asked his mother for one for Christmas or whether she got it for him just on a whim. I just I just have to believe that because it's the same model as the military that it's something that he asked for and she was just in a position to believe that the worst was behind, that this was a bright future for him and he, and he was going to be, you know, okay. And, and the fact that at the time he was serving in the military with a gun at training sites and potentially being deployed with one and everything. So she must have thought, you know, if the, the U.S. military trusts enough to give him a, a weapon, then she can as well. But again, you have to feel for her. And I give her a lot of credit because there are a lot of cases where people with severe mental illness become violent and are I have either already been a threat to others or are potentially a threat to others and police officers are made have to make the terrible decision of ending that threat while the person is suffering from a mental health episode and what you see on the news often is this family afterwards saying you know our, our family member didn't deserve to die Police, the police just murdered him for no reason. Now, I understand that in this case, four innocent people died before her son died, so it's a little harder for her to take that stance, but it's not impossible for her to take that stance, as some people would try to argue, couldn't the police officer have just struck the, the victim in the back of the head with his shotgun and knocked him out and take him into custody? Why did he have to kill him? And since this is kind of a, I mean, we still have some stuff to cover here in the podcast, but the, the vast majority of it is, is done at this point. Um, we can discuss this at this point. What, unfortunately, people see a lot of stuff in movies and TV shows that does, in, in, and especially in action movies or police movies or whatever you want to say, that aren't accurate to real life. So... In the case of any gunfight, I would say the the vast majority of movies out there, if you watch any gunfight style scene, as soon as somebody is hit by a single bullet, they're down and out of that out of that fight. And people see that again and again and again in movies, and I and they think that that's reality. Now there are movies out there that try to more accurately depict what would happen in a gunfight and I will say that just based on my training and experience movies such as the John Wick series is probably one of the closest that comes to the real effects of what would be going on in a gunfight basically even if you're hit in the heart or the aorta there's enough oxygen and stuff running through your blood to keep you alive for roughly 30 seconds to a minute after you've been shot. So even when people are shot in the chest, in real life, they're not going to slump over immediately. Now, they may go into some form of shock or be incapacitated to a certain degree, 
but the only way that somebody actually physically is no longer a threat the second they are shot is if they're hit in the head or the spinal cord. And again, unlike movies and TV shows, headshots are not something that's easy, especially if a target is at distance and especially if that target is moving. So police officers are trained to shoot center mass and also trained in instances where an instantaneous kill shot is needed to shoot for the head if possible. And in the research it said there that when the officer came in contact with Gail, he had a hostage. So you can't risk anything other than that point than a headshot to end that threat. Unlike in the movies, what was called a a butt stroke, because you're hitting them with the butt of the weapon, where you hit somebody with the weapon is not an instant incapacitation as you see in movies. Just the same as a taser does not knock somebody out for 30 minutes or an hour like you see in the movies. So a lot of people see this stuff in movies, and then I've heard it on true crime podcasts. I've heard it from my friends that will ask me questions about an incident. Why didn't the police do this or why didn't the police do that? Because it's not reality. So unfortunately, a a lot of the times police are forced to make a decision based on reality, and then people's perception of reality is different when that situation is reviewed and reported on by either the media or the family of this victim and and it can be very detrimental to what actually happened so i don't mean to be on a soapbox here and i do understand that there are situations in which police officers do engage suspects when other options that are not lethal are viable and in some certain circumstances, those officers will be put on trial for those incidents, and it's happening more and more. And in, in most cases, I agree that these cases you know, need to be looked at closer and investigated. I say mostly agree because the other thing that people don't realize is that police officers are dealing with things in, within a fraction of a second they have to make a decision they don't get the benefit of that hindsight of that 2020 they don't get to go back and think could i have done 12 different things differently with the information because in reality yes if you could give a police officer all of the information about that tactical situation ahead of time they'll likely come up with the best safest course of action but when that threat is right there in front of them they have to do what any other reasonable officer is going to do and that is end that threat as quickly and safely as possible for everybody else and unfortunately that's what gets dissected sometimes in hindsight in these cases where especially if it's a suicide by cop somebody with mental illness puts a hammer in their pocket and then at night in dark pulls it out and aims towards the police officers and the police officers all they see is is something dark and metal in their hand and shoots them and then afterwards everybody has an outcry why did they shoot him you're just holding a hammer he was 30 feet away from the officers what you know those officers are murderers unfortunately it sometimes gets reported that way and so people believe that and i guess to come full circle back to this we, you know, there are cases too with people with knives that are at distance from officers that are shot. And I'll go back to what I said: hitting somebody who's moving 
and in the cases of somebody who's high on drugs, it, just shooting them, the pain tolerance of a shot or the shock of a shot is not going to register in their brain. And their body has the capacity to fight for minutes after being shot, unless it's an incapacitating shot. So if somebody's running at them with a knife, a taser may not have any effect. A beanbag round from a shotgun might not have any effect. Ultimately, that police officer may have no choice except to end that threat at distance because if they're going to be fighting with somebody for two minutes that has a knife, there's a good chance that officer is going to lose that fight, especially against somebody who's high on drugs and has no strength inhibitions or pain tolerance. So, again, I know I went out way out on a on a, on a wing there. Um, and I apologize if I lost any of you in that process, but I just wanted to talk a little bit since, again, this this episode isn't as long as the others and I had a chance to kind of interject some learning experiences for the listeners. Um, but again, if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'll gladly answer them. And if I make a mistake, I'm, there's a chance I might misspeak and miss it in my editing. Go ahead and let me know. I guess I could always go back and re-edit and re-release the episode if it's if it's an egregious mistake. Otherwise, if it's something that bothers you, I might just be able to explain it to you better if if it's uh if it's over email. But anyway, let's get back to the case here, um, and we'll just get into the aftermath of what happened. Of course, the music world was devastated by the loss of of Dimebag Daryl. His brother Vinnie Paul took it extremely hard. He would later recall the last moment with his brother alive was the two of them backstage and about to go out for their set. They said they were excited that they had two shows left and then would be going home for Christmas and then they'd start recording Damage Plan's second album. Their code word before they had fun and just rocked out was Van Halen. So they both said that, high-fived each other, and walked out on stage. That was the last moment he'd have alive with his brother. Daryl had a public memorial that was attended by thousands of fans and some of the biggest names in heavy metal. Artists such as Eddie Van Halen, Zach Wilde, and Jerry Cantrell attended and Daryl was buried in a kiss casket donated by Gene Simmons. Eddie Van Halen donated his 1979 Charvel Bumblebee guitar to be buried in the casket with Daryl. This was due to Daryl asking Eddie just weeks before his death for a, re- for a replica of the guitar. Eddie would say at the funeral that Daryl was an original and he deserved the original guitar. Vincent Vinnie Paul Abbott died on June 22, 2018 at his home in Las Vegas due to heart disease. He was also buried in a kiss casket next to his brother and they're both buried next to their mother. Now just some notes I found on Daryl's life. So Daryl was never married but was romantically involved with his longtime partner Rita Haney. They grew up together and had been dating since they were eight years old. During the band's success in the 1990s, Daryl bought a house in the small town of Dal Worthington Gardens, Texas. He had a pet goat and was described by neighbors as very approachable. And I found this interesting because here you have one of the lead guitarists for one of the most heavy metal bands of the 90s, and here he's got this house in a small town in Texas with a pet goat and his, his longtime girlfriend partner and neighbors are saying he's just like any other guy that you'd meet on the street or any other neighbor you'd have you just walk up and have a conversation with them so I think that that defines the fact that despite the band's success and all that came with it he was still a, a pretty down-to-earth guy 
Now, the brothers would open a strip club called the Clubhouse in Dallas in 1996. The original plan was to build a golf course, and the strip club would be the 19th hole, but the course was too expensive. However, the club did end up being popular with musicians and sports figures in the Dallas area. The brothers were huge fans of the Dallas Stars, and the Dallas Stars fight song, Puck Off, was written by Pantera. During a pool party hosted by Vinnie Paul for the Dallas Stars after they won the Stanley Cup in 1999, the Stanley Cup itself was dented when Guy Carboneau tried to throw it out a window and into the pool, and instead it hit the side of the pool. Daryl's consistently ranked very high on many of music critics' lists of top rock guitarists of all time. Due to the large number of guitar players for thousands of rock bands over the years, his high ratings speak volumes about his playing ability and the unique sound he brought to a new era of rock music. Now, the hero of this story, I've kind of already talked about him a few times, is going to go to Officer James Negemeyer and the three other people who lost their lives trying to make a difference. It takes a certain type of person to run into danger and face certain death. Officer Negemeyer saved many lives that day, and the actions of the other three likely saved many lives as well. They put their own lives ahead of others, and that is the definition of a hero. Now, Officer Negemeyer's actions are in perfect accordance with what police officers are taught to do in post-Columbine America. An active shooter will do maximum damage in the first few minutes on scene and will not stop until they are stopped or face resistance. If Officer Negemeyer had hesitated, more lives would have been lost, and he deserves a lot of credit for his bravery and ability to complete his mission that night. And that's just something, unfortunately, we've seen on the news in the past few years. These active shooters, these mass shootings, unfortunately, I don't think they're going away. And I was a senior in high school when Columbine happened, and I'll probably cover it during one of my cases down the road here, but... At that time, it was a police tactic to just arrive, surround the area where the shooter was, and kind of wait for them to to surrender or until you got an entire SWAT team to be able to go into the building and, and end the threat. And as we saw with Columbine, so many lives of students and teachers were lost because the shooters have nothing to fear. They're in an area where nobody else has a weapon. They're not facing any threat, so they can take their time and walk through the school and just shoot whoever they want, whenever they want. And law enforcement realized that if this is going to keep happening, they need to approach this a different way. And what they found out was that in cases with uh, mass shooters, not, not normally, or having two is abnormal. It's normally one, but if you have one person walking around a building, they won't stop until they have to. And so what we trained on as police officers is whoever's closest you get there, you go in and you end that threat. Now, even though police officers have a bullet resistant vests and now all carry or all now for the most part, all carry assault rifles. It doesn't, mean that there's no risk involved for the police officer going in but when we look at the priority of life when you're a police officer innocence are above your own and there's a reason for that that we that police officers sign up to protect others and so you cannot sit outside that school or that building afraid to go in because you 
think that your life is going to be lost because for every second and every minute that you delay, more people in there are going to die. So in this case, uh, the officer was close enough to be able to respond, didn't hesitate, went straight in, went right to the threat, ended the threat. And while four lives lost is, is terrible and tragic, and those lives are irreplaceable, the actions of those people that day, whether it be two people that tried to subdue the shooter or the guy who was up there just trying to help those that had already been shot, those people saved lives that day, and so did the officer. So they will be the hero of the story, and that will complete the episode on Dimebag Daryl Abbott. I want to thank you for listening, and stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.